0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone.
1: You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right? right Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something Shakespeare never did. This is what you are thankful for. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and uh, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, California. I hope you're doing well. Are you in transit? Are you heading home for Thanksgiving? Uh, Is Thanksgiving already over? When are you listening to this? Wherever you are, uh, whatever you're doing, uh, I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you're doing well. Jamie Iredell is the guest today. He has a new essay collection out uh, on Future Tense. It's called, I Was a Fat, Drunk, Catholic School Insomniac. He and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Uh, But before we get going, I want to tell you about yet another bookstore experience this is becoming a, a kind of a ritual for me on Sundays. I go to the bookstore for a couple hours. I wander around, uh, I enjoy the tranquility. I hold books. I pick them up, I I, I caress them. <laughs> I put them down. Here's the thing. Uh, I was in the bookstore on Sunday for more than two hours because I'm becoming that guy. I'm the old guy who hangs out at the bookstore for two hours on the weekends, (laughs) but that's okay. It's a good place to hang out. So I go to the bookstore and what I'm realizing is that I go in with really high expectations. This is my epiphany. I go into the bookstore and I'm saying to myself, I'm going to find the book today. Like I'm going to find a book that is going to uh, split my head open It's going to blow my mind. I'm going to find a book that speaks to me uh, intimately and is perfectly in sync with where I am in life right now on this day at this time. I want the perfect book. You know what I'm saying? Does anyone else do this? So like for two hours plus, I'm looking around this bookstore and I cannot find the book. Like every book I pick up, uh, including uh, several classics, I read them for a little while, and then I put them back down. Nothing is grabbing me. Nothing seems interesting. I can't get beyond like a page or two before I get bored. (laughs) And uh, this begins to worry me. I start to experience what you might uh, refer to as a very low-grade sense of panic. As the minutes tick by, uh, hour one rolls over into hour two and I can't find anything nothing is speaking to me uh, I am alone <laughs> I feel alone in this bookstore and you know this is the thing about me I, I don't think I can read a book for fun anymore meaning it, it can't just be like a way to pass the time oh whatever Like it has to be like a life or death, intense experience. I mean, like, you know, reading is pleasurable for me. It's intensely pleasurable when that is happening or when I have that particular, uh, you know, psychological or emotional experience. But, you know, pleasure uh, comes in a distant second to uh, this like search for deeper meaning. Wanting books that uh, wake me up. I want instructions. I want to be instructed on how to be alive in lucid prose or something. So uh, there I am in the bookstore. I'm panicking quietly. And I stumble into a book as I'm uh, browsing around called 10 billion by Stephen Emmett, a uh, scientist whose research specialty is complex natural systems. And uh, I picked this book up. I've heard of it before. Uh, Ken Bauman actually told me about this book. And I grab it off the shelf and I start reading. And uh, I read the entire book in one sitting. And it is an extremely harsh and depressing book about the state of the world. Population explosion, climate change, uh, resource allocation, pollution, all of it. And just to give you like some idea of uh, just how depressing this book is, <laughs> uh, the last sentence in the, uh, in the book is, and I quote, "I think we're fucked," says the uh, scientific expert. So you know, this book takes a very pessimistic view of the future, and I found myself feeling uh, depressed, imagining a uh, war-torn overheated planet of starving, miserable human beings. I became fearful, uh, thinking about my uh, daughter, etc. And then I got up and I put the book back on the shelf and I started wandering around again. And uh, I continued searching for that one book. Uh, The one book that was going to speak to me. The one book that uh, I was fated to take home with me at this particular moment in my life because it was going to change everything. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it on that day. Uh, Oftentimes I will find a book that will uh, resonate. But on this day, after like two and a half hours of looking, I walked out of the store empty handed and uh, in a state of uh, defeat. A state of defeat that was compounded by the fact that I had read 10 billion. 10 billion which uh, I hate to say uh, seem to, uh, with some accuracy at least, paint a very bleak picture of the human future if we don't make radical collective global changes in the immediate future. You should actually read it. You can read it in like 30 minutes. And uh, just as a side note, uh, after reading it and after I left the bookstore, I thought it might be funny to buy like a hundred copies of that book and give them away as Christmas cards. (laughs) Like, you know, the, how people send pictures of their family or their kids every year that people put on refrigerators. I want to make one of those and then tuck it inside a copy of 10 billion. Does that sound like a good idea? Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I guess today is Jamie Iredell. Uh, his new essay collection is called I Was a Fat, Drunk, Catholic School Insomniac. It is available now in paperback from Future Tense. Great to have him here on the program. I've been a fan of his work for a while now. He's been a contributor over at The Nervous Breakdown, uh, etc. So here he is, folks. This here... Right now is Jamie Iredell, and his new collection, once again, is called I Was a Fat, Drunk, Catholic School Insomniac.
1: I am sitting inside of a mansion in the middle of Midtown Atlanta, Georgia. Um, This is a mansion that I teach in, Um, and it's been renovated, and it's like startlingly beautiful. Um, and, uh, anyway, I'm sitting in like this, the lady who runs the place, I'm sitting in, in her office
0: on her phone. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So what you, yeah. where do you, where do you teach?
1: Well, normally like right outside this office door, there's a big table that can seat, like you can see, like, it's like a medieval banquet table kind of thing. You can seat like 40 people around it. And that's where I normally teach just at that table. But I mean, there's like there, a is, is, chandelier. There's wh- like a chandelier above it with like swords and
0: and spears and stuff in it. Pretty crazy. Like what, like, what is this Middle Earth? Yeah, yeah, kind
1: of. Uh, <laughs> middle, at, it's Middle Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> is is it a
0: university? Are you teaching at a university?
1: Yeah. Know? Well, yeah, I teach at a uh, I teach at an art and design college. Okay. So and they're really big on like restoration and stuff. Um, so they like buy up old old buildings and restore them and then use them as classrooms and. This is the writing center that okay. I teach in.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. So art college makes it make a little bit more sense with like the swords and the chandeliers and like the
1: Yeah.
0: The I don't know, with the idiosyncratic design or whatever. But
1: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's um it's a it's a it's a weird but like really fun place to be around.
0: <laughs> well that's cool. So I and you know, you've been in Atlanta for a while, but I wanna say I recall that you were uh you also spent time in like Reno, Nevada. Am I wrong?
1: No, no, absolutely. Yeah, I lived in Reno for almost ten years.
0: Okay, and where are you from? Uh, where are you from originally?
1: I'm from uh, I'm from the Monterey Bay in California, um, like okay. right in between Santa Cruz and Monterey. I'm from a little town. I actually didn't live in the town, but I lived right in between these two little towns called Casterville and Prunedale. Casterville, man, the artichoke capital of the world.
0: I was going to say, I think I've heard of Casterville in that context, but I couldn't like pin it down in my brain, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Well, that's cool. So you grew up eating lots of artichokes, I take it.
1: Actually, yeah, we did. Like, and when I I came out here, I remember I was dating this girl one time and um, I was like, hey, let me cook you some artichokes. And she was like, what? (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) like, what's an artichoke? She didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And I cooked them and she didn't know how to eat them and everything. But yeah, we used to buy them all the time and just... You know, I think out here in Georgia, it's like an artichoke costs like $4.50 for one of them. Right. And out there, you get them for like a quarter, okay. maybe, because they don't, yeah, you don't have to ship them anyway. They just come out of the field.
0: Well, eat. see, I grew up eating artichokes. My family lived in Southern, or in Northern California for a couple of years when I was really young, and I think that's where my parents picked it up, because they're from the South, so they would have no context for it, but... um I grew up eating them. I, I still love them. Uh, is there like a way that they should be prepared? Because it was always just like you steam it or whatever, and then you melt some butter and you just eat it. <laughs> or
1: yeah, that, that's pretty much it. But there is a trick though. There's a really good trick to um, cooking an artichoke, really fast and easy. And that is, you know, you turn the artichoke thistle side up. You know, so the leaves are pointing upwards in your hand. Okay. And you run it under the faucet. You know, in cold water, use, you know, whatever, filtered water if you want to do that. And then you stick it inside of an old bread bag, like, you know, like a Wonder Bread bag or okay. something like that. Sure, yeah. And then tie the bag up and put it in the microwave Ooh. for like seven minutes. And that'll do it. That's like one of the best ways to cook an artichoke, yeah.
0: Okay, so wait, so you just you just, you just soak the artichoke, you run it under water, and then you Yeah, just... you just
1: get the water like inside the leaves, you know? You just right. let, it run, let, let it run over the artichoke, and then you just throw it in, in this, into the bread bag.
0: Do you tie a knot in the bag or anything?
1: Yeah, yeah, tie a knot in the bag.
0: Do you have to vent it?
1: No, not really. I mean, you know, it'll kind of vent eventually anyway, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, but that's like a really... And it comes out perfect. Like, I've done it over a stove top and everything, and, like, some parts of it will be hard, and other parts will be, you know, cooked or whatever, but the bread bag always works.
0: Okay, that's good to know. And is there any trepidation about using plastic in a microwave? I've read, like you know, chain emails that like warn you against like any kind of plastic in a microwave. And then I've read also that that's complete bullshit, but, uh, I guess not, huh? I guess it's just go for it. Let's have, I
1: mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get cancer, but you know, God knows (laughs) if it's going to be because of that. I I put a lot of crazy crap into my body. So,
0: well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) Um, and I should also say too, that when you were talking about the cost of artichokes earlier, it, yeah. it occurs to me, and I, maybe this is just, like, me being, a, like, a, a combination of, like, privileged and an idiot, but, like, I rarely, like, look at the cost of vegetables. Like, my mother-in-law, to give you, like, a parallel example, every time we either talk to her on the phone or Skype or we're in uh, her company... She always asks my wife about the price of gas. They're <laughs> always like, yeah. so what's the price of gas in California? We're like, I have no fucking idea. Like, I've never looked at the price of gas because I need gas. So I, 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 <laughs> right. there's no point. I'm going to pay for the gas no matter what it costs because I can't there's get it no, around.
1: There's no point, yeah. And so yeah, like, I when, I,
0: when I go to the grocery store, it's like, you know, I'm, unless I'm getting a ton of stuff, you know, but if I'm just getting stuff for me, if I want an artichoke, I don't care what it costs. I mean, I guess that means I'm lucky, but...
1: Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's like maybe something like, – I guess when you get older, like you care about these things. I don't know. Because my dad, whenever my da- I talk to my dad, bless his heart, there's a real southern thing that I picked up. Oh, right? sure, yeah. But my dad, he'll always be like – on the phone, he'll be like, So, what's weather like out there, bud? And, you know, this is just kind of like my dad's way of talking to me. Um, like he doesn't really care what the weather's like, but that's his way of starting a conversation. So I'm like, well, it's muggy. You know, it feels right. like I'm living between somebody's ass cheeks or something <laughs> like that because I, I live in the South, you know? so. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, you been to any ball games? This is the second question, you know, about things that he cares about. So I think you can, like, start to put together your list of things you'll care about when you're old, like what's the weather like, how much does gas cost, what's your phone bill like, I don't well, know.
0: You, well, know. You, you want to know something funny, like, because I was just at a, I, you know, a little bit of a different thing, but sort of the same. I was at a, a kid's birthday party on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, or was it Sunday? No, Saturday. And, um, you know, it's like you standing around with all these parents, many of whom you don't know because they're just like parents of kids that go to the same school as the kid whose birthday it is, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I, I found myself like standing next to this gaggle of moms and not having any like – I couldn't figure out what to say. And so I was just like the quiet dude. I just – I sat in a chair and – uh I was like, what do I talk about with these people? Like I didn't know, I had no line in. And then like this other like writerly dude um, struck up a conversation with me and it turns out he's into books and I was like so relieved. Like I didn't realize how limited I was, I guess. Like I kind of feel like I should be able to talk to more people or just like chit chat, but I get very intimidated by a gaggle of like LA moms at like a kid birthday party. It just completely threw me.
1: Oh, no, that sounds absolutely frightening. Yeah. But,
0: I mean, I guess maybe a lot of people feel that way at kid birthday parties. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, like, I mean, people like us who are like book people, I think we're probably, um, I guess most of us are probably pretty anxious around people who aren't quite of our ilk. Um, I, I get that way anyway, you know, like I have a kid too. So when I'm this morning, I was, I dropped my daughter off at daycare and the, um, daycare teacher wasn't in the broom. But there were, like, three other parents, and I was just, like, uh, thunderstruck, kind of. I was
0: like, I don't want to talk to the other parents. Like, I, I think it's the small talk. It's like, I, I yeah. don't know what it is. It's like, well, hey, how are you doing? And it also feels, like, really inauthentic, and it's like, but then are you going to, like, do they want to get into it with me? Like, I like talking on this show because it's like, I feel like the, the conversations are substantive, and there's some sort of common ground, I guess, going in, but... Um, I find that, like, in casual situations like birthday parties or whatever where you're supposed to just, like, gossip about the playground or whatever, I'm terrible at that. Like, I need to talk about something um, that that has a little bit more meat on its bones or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get the same way. Like, I really am really bad about the small talk. Um, it's just – it's mostly that it's just ungodly boring to me, you know? Like yeah. I don't, you know, like, and like, I love my kid. I love, I love my daughter and everything, but like, even talking about your kids for a while is like really boring, you know, like I love my kid, but my kid is not my life. You know, like I have so many other things going on that are interesting you know, it's like I can talk, oh, she's two and a half, and, yeah, and she p- pooped in the toilet the other day for the first time. Like, it was great, you know, um, but I can't I can't go on for 20 minutes
0: about that. No, I am so, I get self-conscious about that because I don't want to be the guy who does that, even though, you know, on some occasions I lapse because I just get, you know, you start to burst with a little weird, like, dad pride or whatever. But I yeah. don't, don't want to be the guy who won't shut up about his kid. And then uh, the other thing, too, is that, you know, when you're talking to another parent who has a kid as well, then it just it, it kind of defeats the purpose somehow. It's just yeah. two people having the same, con- you know, I don't know. It just feels silly. I want to have real conversations with people and I don't want to be like just bantering, you know, at a kid's birthday party. <laughs> about <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, I want to hear more about your, your youth growing up, uh, in the Monterey Bay. Like do you come from a uh, artsy folk. Like what's the, what's the background?
1: Yeah, no, I am, um, I am totally the black sheep in my family, um, uh, everybody thinks I'm weird. Um, I have a great relationship with my family. My family is really, really great, um, really supportive of of what I do. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I was I was always really interested in in art when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother used to tell some story that you know she'd ask she'd ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up, you know, and I guess you know most little kids say things like be a fireman or whatever. And I said, I either want to be an artist or the president of the United
0: States. (laughs) Wait a minute. You know what? I want to say you're the second person I've talked to recently who had that exact same Really? Uh, list of aspirations. <laughs> yes, yeah, I either want to be like... A wait, pick. it
1: wasn't. It wasn't. Wait, wait, it wasn't. It was somebody on the podcast? Yes,
0: right? yes. It, it was, wasn't Claire V. Watkins, was it? It or may have. May have, may well have been. My memory. Because
1: I just listened to Claire's and I listened to Kevin's the other day too, and I don't remember either. I, I don't know. Maybe I just don't remember them saying that. Yeah. That's funny though.
0: Yeah, that is funny. But that, that makes some sense because I feel like in both in both uh, roles, one would at least uh, you know at first blush seem to have lots of control. And I think writers like that, you know, like I know I do. Like the idea of kind of controlling your own domain, not having a boss, uh, that's the dream in anyway, isn't it? To sort of run, yeah, your, run yeah. your own shop and get to make your stuff and nobody tells you what to do and hopefully you do well at it and you make some money and you get to sort of just, you know, live life on your own terms.
1: It is. It's nice, you know. And I figured, I figured out that the best way to do that was to marry a lawyer. Um, and so that's, so I lucked out you know, because I don't make a lot of money, <laughs> right? but I am my own boss. Um, I'm kind of joking about the lawyer thing. I mean, <laughs> I, my wife is a lawyer, but I, I love my wife, but, um, uh, I just kind of lucked out in that regard, I guess. Hell I mean, yeah. I'm a, I'm a college professor too, but, uh, you know, like compared to what my wife makes is
0: peanuts. Right. Right. Well, that's good though, because that gives you, I mean, you gotta, you have to have a little space, you know, you have to have, uh, like I fight against this. Like you, uh, you have to have creative, space and feel like you're financially okay, especially once you start getting married and having children in order to be able to work. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I, a lot of times feel like someone's like sitting on my head as yeah. I try to be creative. Cause I'm always so freaking worried about the other stuff, you know?
1: I mean, it, it certainly helps, but you know, I will say that like, um, before I got married, um, my wife and I were dating and everything, but we were, and she was in law school. So we were both really poor and, I feel like I was, I mean, like, I, I am engaged with everything that I'm writing all the time, but I feel like I was writing, you know, really great stuff when I was poor. Um, I mean, I certainly have more time to really, I guess I, I, I put a lot more into the revision process now because I have the ability to
0: do that. To and hunk- I think like... To what? To like just was, hunker down and just spend like months?
1: Yeah, and, not, and I guess I don't feel as anxious about like trying to get stuff out you know get stuff out into um magazines or to publish a book you know because I hadn't published a book when I was dating my wife and then so I was I think I was, I feel like I was working I, mean, I don't know it's one of those retrospect retrospective things you know like I feel like I was working harder but I probably wasn't I'm probably working harder now
0: yeah did you uh, do you find it like now that you have a kid that you're any more focused than you used to be Had, did that concentrate your energies in any way or did it uh, disperse
1: yeah that? absolutely absolutely I'm way more focused and constant. I mean, I, I, I put in a good eight hour work day every day, pretty much. I mean, more than that, When I'm teaching, you know, I have to spend, I have to focus so much energy on doing that and grading papers and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, then when I'm not, it's like I put in a, a pretty full work day, eight hours plus of writing and editorial work. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, if I didn't have a kid, I don't know. You know, I'd be down at the bar snorting lines in the bathroom <laughs> or something.
0: Okay. So uh, with that in mind, I want to hear more uh, because you're the black sheep. You, you're raised uh, in what I would consider to be one of the more idyllic corners of the country, Monterey Bay, coast of California. You know, it beats living in a lot of places. But um, your folks, neither neither of them are, are artistic in nature. Do you have any kind of –
1: Yeah. Like- yeah. My yeah, – my, my, my mother is a um, – well, she was a flight attendant for Pan American Airlines for um, a good portion of her life. And then she was a travel agent, You know, and then travel agents became obsolete, and she's done a number of different jobs. My father was a, um, a fine men's clothier. He, uh, he sells suits and sport coats and slacks and that sort of stuff. And um, I used to do that when I was in high school and when I was in undergrad in my first year of my – graduate school, I sold suits too. I worked for the men's warehouse. And in fact, if I was standing in front of you right now, Brad, and I saw you, I could tell you exactly what size of all those clothes you wear. <laughs> I was going to say, you Just must be,
0: but you must be good. Like when it, like when you, it comes time on those rare occasions when you have to dress formally, um, you must have a pretty good sense of style. Do you feel like you have any kind of like ingrained advantage because of your father's profession?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, when I, The way I dress normally is I look like a bum, you know. I mean, I look like a a California gangbanger. I mean, that's how I dress normally, like a Mexican gangbanger. (laughs) um, But I clean up pretty good, you know. Like, I know how to put on a suit. I know how to match, like, you know, different colors or whatever. Um, And I used to do this every day of my life. I mean, and for when I teach, I wear... I wear a college shirt and slacks, I don't usually wear a tie sport coat or anything like that, but
0: no like no no elbow patches nothing none of that
1: <laughs> yeah, I have a pipe and everything <laughs>
0: yeah um, uh so okay, so you're kind of like the oddball kid you're uh you know you have any siblings, is it just you
1: yeah, no, I got a brother and a sister, and um uh, my sister she works for the wine industry in the Napa valley okay, good, and uh, my brother um my brother works for uh Oh crap! Um, I'm blanking on the name of the uh, the name of the dog food company. He works for Purina. Okay. Um, and he's like a kind of like a re- regional sales manager sort of thing for P- Purina. And then uh, and then so there's yeah, you. they have like really completely different lives than me. Um, but we all get along really well. You know, like we're we're really close and um, we talk to each other pretty frequently. And my brother's like really really funny. He's got a really creative sense of humor. Um, my sister really likes, um, to indulge in the arts. Like, and you know, she works in the, in the wine industry,
0: uh, which is arguably, I guess, what is it? That's artisanal, but I mean, isn't it like, that's an art, there's an art to making good wine, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she works mostly on like the, um, you know, like the marketing and uh, side of this, but she does, she knows a lot about wine and she knows, um, uh, you know, she knows like, how to describe the different profiles or whatever.
0: Right. I wish I <laughs> you know? wish I knew more. I mean, it gets to be a little bit annoying when, like, unless the thing about it is that if you have somebody at, at the party who works in the wine industry legitimately, and like isn't coming at you as some sort of I don't know snob or whatever, um, it's great to have somebody there that can tell you what you're drinking and can actually like you know uh, give you a an, an informed description of the different varietals and everything else but
1: it's a little that's bit- actually the cool thing about my sister like she's like you know she works in the napa valley but she's not a wine snob she's like it doesn't matter if you bought like one time i bought just like a 10 dollar bottle of chianti or something for dinner and she was like sweet you know this looks great and you know and we had it for dinner and she was like this is an awesome great simple table wine.
0: You know? Right, 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 she's right. Not,
1: she's, not a, she's not a wine snob at all.
0: But. I, but you know what, man? I feel like the people who actually work in the wine business often aren't. I think it's the people who want to seem like they know what they're talking about at a party who are. Right, right. people Or people who are like, you know, having some sort of internal class battle that they're, you know, externalizing through their, their wine knowledge or whatever. But um, it's a cool thing. And I just wish that it weren't so often like uh, sullied by that part of it because I actually really like wine. I think it's like, I like the you know I like the whole idea of it the way that it you have to nurture the grapes and you're sort of dependent on the weather and it says something about the year like I think there's a cool history to it.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like I, I in particular I like wine paired with food. You know, like I like here right. I can just drink beer. You know, just for the hell of it. I don't really drink wine that way. Like, I I want it to to pair it with something else.
0: Well, that's right. But that's the thing, though. It's like, as I get older and uh, I don't have as much time or energy or interest in going out and, like, drinking to get fucked up, like, it's fun. Like, the only way that I really enjoy it is with food. It's like, I want to sit down to a meal and I like wine. Beer doesn't agree with me as much for whatever reason, but wine goes great with food, you know, and then, then like, an occasional cocktail or whatever. But um, I like that part of it, too, is that it's meant to be uh consumed in unison with a good meal and like that makes it seem good to me
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good thing yeah
0: i would say right right there's worse things in the world than 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 winemakers so indeed uh are you the middle child no i'm the oldest oh you are so you're you're leading the way you're you're leading the charge for your siblings
1: oh yeah i i taught them all how to smoke pot and everything. Um,
0: (laughs) So yeah, that's another thing about Northern California. Like you must've had access to really good weed growing up, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, there was in the region of California where I was from, you know, where I was only 15 minutes from Santa Cruz. So uh, there was a lot of people who were growing weed in the the region. And when I was growing up, of course, it was still pretty, pretty illegal. Um, So that's, you know, the, you that, a, that's the
0: dumbest fucking thing in the world. I'm just going to go with it. Right I mean, I know, like, I'm ridiculous. not, I'm not advocating that it's going to, like, you know, m- make you better at whatever you want to do, or that it's the solution to your like mental anguish or whatever. But if we live in a world where cigarettes and alcohol are legal, then it's absurd that pot would be a criminal act. You know, smoking pot would be a criminal activity.
1: It's it's unbelievable, but I'm glad so much that it's changing. It seems like finally kind of rapidly yeah. in the country, you know, and attitudes are really changing about it. And, um, obviously legally in a lot of States, things are changing. Um, of course not here in the fair state of Georgia, but,
0: um, <laughs> well, you know not want to know, there's like an interesting thing that I read about. Uh, I forget who was saying it. Maybe this is Terrence McKenna. He's sort of like the go-to for me on things of this nature, but like, you know, when you think about pot, which is like, I guess a mild hallucinogen, um, I think that's what its classification would be, but whatever it is, you know, like it really is antithetical to uh, the capitalist impulse, whereas like alcohol, in a way, it makes you social and you can like go out on a business dinner or whatever. And like, I don't know, you can entertain with it. And then cigarettes, like they, they're a stimulant, and they keep you awake and, you know, whatever they, you don't, you don't need to right. eat. But then like, you know, if you have a bunch of people who are on their like lunch break, instead of like a two martini lunch or just like smoking a bowl. They're not going to want to go back to work in their cubicle and, like, kill it for the company. <laughs> you
1: know? like, yeah, really. Of course, I wouldn't really want to go back to work either if I had two martinis. I'd want to have two more.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, and by the way, those days seem to be done, too. You know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, who, who's, having a, who's having a two-cocktail lunch anymore? It seems like a yeah, real
1: Well, I don't know. I don't really deal with the New York crowd too much. So maybe those people do. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think
0: it's approaching mythical at this point. I think it's kind of faded. But uh, anyhow, yeah. so... You, uh, as the black sheep, like you, like what kind of kid, like, were you a huge, uh, troublemaker as a teenager and stuff?
1: Uh, actually yes and no. I mean, not, not really. I never really got into big trouble. Um, there was one time when I tried to, uh, uh, shoplift a Michael Jordan t-shirt from JC
0: Penney's and I got caught.
1: Um, I got into fights, you
0: know, um, but were you, you good? (laughs) were you a good fighter?
1: Um, you know, not like, uh, not exceptionally. So I, I'm just, I'm a pretty big guy. So, you know, I knew how to throw throw my weight around. Um, and, uh, and so I just, you know, I sometimes use that more for intimidation, I guess, than anything, but, but really I was a pretty nice person, you know, like I, I like to get along with everybody and, Um, I wanted to get along with everybody. I didn't want to get into fights, you know, of course, you know, what it's like growing up, of course, some people are going to be like, well, you know, screw that guy. Um, and it happened of course, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was one time I I broke this kid's arm. I threw him against a fence and like, I snapped his forearm somehow. I mean, I was pissed. I threw him really hard. Yeah. And, um, he was four. (laughs) Yeah. We were like we were freshmen in high school. So we were, you know, we were just kids, but yeah, I was mad. He called me a fat ass. So I was like, well, that brought up some unbridled rage.
0: <laughs> and Wait, were I you, were you, were day. you a, a chunky uh, kid?
1: Oh uh, yeah. I've always been chubby, you know, like not like super huge or anything, but like I've always been a chubby, a chubby, a chubby guy, chubby kid and everything. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So he, he, uh, he lit that match and it was over with.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was like, he called me that and it was like, fucking Chewbacca came out or something.
0: (laughs) I can actually do a Chewbacca impression, but I'm not, I can't do it on the microphone. I'll (laughs) blow, I'll blow out the levels. But, um, (laughs) so were you writing as a teenager? Was this like, like, you know, your, your artistic impulse or your literary impulse? Was it, uh, nurtured at a young age or did it kind of start to come out of you after you, uh, you moved on into college or whatever was next?
1: I really started to kind of come out in college, but I did it when I was younger. Um, you know, I, I was a big reader. I read all the time. And, um, and uh, like, my, my brother and sister would make fun of me. They'd be, we had another room, you know, which was like the TV room, and then we had a living room that had all these bookcases in it with books. And my brother and sister would sneak out um, through the hallway and come and, like, spy on me where I sat in the other room reading books. And then when I caught them staring at me, that they'd laugh and yell "nerd," <laughs> and they'd run, they'd run back into the room where the television was, you know. So, uh, and
0: you're, and you're so like, re- and you're like, don't you realize I broke a kid's arm? I could shatter you.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, well, I would, you know, and I'd be like, I'll fucking kill you, and they'd be like, <laughs> they'd be like, you're a fat ass, and I'd be like, I'll sit on you. <laughs> And then they would run away and they were faster than me because I was fat. Fuck you, you little fuckers. Uh, you know, and but, but yeah, that was my threat that I'd sit on them. And then they make fun of me about that predictably. So, <laughs> um, so it was pretty bleak. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh,
0: but you were, you were social. Like it, it sounds like you uh, handled yourself socially in high school. You had friends. It wasn't like you were.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You did I was well. actually like pretty popular. Like I played football and um, I was voted most likely to become homeless. Were you? My <laughs> senior year, yeah, because I was a big pothead, you know, so well, sure. was like, that guy's never going to get a job.
0: Yeah. Uh, they were almost right. Almost. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and um, uh, anyway, I, yeah, so like, I just, I don't know, I just always loved to read. And like, sometimes I would um, sit down and start writing stories, you know, and I would, because I, I would read a novel and I'd be like, wow, that novel is really great. I could do this. And I'd start and I'd get like two or three pages in and then I'd be like, I feel like going outside
0: and
1: to the football around, or something like that. I'm you know? still
0: I'm still like that today.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, anyway, so, yeah, but it was really in college that I. Uh, you know, uh, it's like a cliche. What happened was I, I read Kerouac's on the road and I was like, OK, I'm going to be a writer. That's it. Yeah. Where did yeah. you go to college? University of Nevada in Reno. That's how I ended up in Reno.
0: Okay. So how did you get there? Like what, what drew you to Reno?
1: Um, well, so my parent, my family, my grandfather built this cabin in Squaw Valley, you know, um, where they had the Olympics in 1960. Yeah. And so I've been going up to the Lake Tahoe area, Squaw Valley, like all my life, you know, I grew up skiing up there and everything. And, and, uh, and so, you know, we, my parents were taking me around when I was a junior and senior in college and we were, or sorry, in high school. And we were checking out colleges like UC Davis, um, UC Berkeley, UNR, um, and a bunch of other places. We also traveled to like um, the Midwest because my dad went to college out there. So we looked at University of Michigan, Notre Dame, uh, a few other places uh, around the area. And um, I guess I just, I, I, at first I kind of wanted to be, because um, I was a kind of a jock in high school. I, I wanted to get into sports medicine I knew I wasn't going to be a um, professional athlete or anything like that so I thought oh maybe I could work in with sports and I could work with sports medicine and then I figured out that they had um, a program for that at UNR and I applied and got accepted and everything and then I found out that the program that I wanted to be in involved all this math <laughs> and I was like well fuck that
0: yeah, right?
1: <laughs> I suck at math I'm not doing that and I quickly changed my major to political science. Um, and then about a year out into my major in political science, I took, I was taking these classes that were like Western traditions classes. You know, you kind of cover everything from Gilgamesh up to contemporary literature, philosophy, history, yeah. et cetera.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's when I read on the road and, and I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. That's it. And I took a, I took an intro creative writing class and everything. And,
0: yeah I was just you know, that was it yeah. i was I was just talking to uh Colin McCann and yeah. uh, his his episode's gonna come up after yours, but it was a similar experience for him, and we talked about uh how many uh people jack Kerou- like, how many lives Jack Kerouac like really did change like that's a that's not a that's not an abstraction like it's kind of unbelievable really yeah i mean it's anom-
1: especially when you're older and you go back and try to read on the road and you're like, oh my god, this is so awful hey.
0: Like At a certain age, at a certain age, I mean, it hits you. Like books are all about timing; they really are. Yeah, and uh, you know, you pick up a certain book at a certain moment in your life, and it could be on the road, or it could be, um, you know, any number of books, and it can completely split your head open and send you off on a totally new vector that that completely changes your destiny. You know,
1: absolutely, yeah. And I was like, that was just kind of like that was my you know gateway drug into. Being a writer, like I, I read all these books that that I love prior to that, but never really considered seriously. Like, oh yeah, I could do this. And-
0: so did you did you start like hitchhiking and like taking like crazy road trips? I mean, because I think like that book for me, it makes me it makes you want to travel. Like I I think I had the impulse to kind of wander anyway, but that book kind of like you know validates that impulse, and then it also like I think um, inspires you to kind of live life all the way up you know like yeah, just yeah. go just go for it and better to burn out than rust or whatever and that's, right. that's very attractive when you're 19 you know and it's still, yeah, there's, there's totally. still there's still a part of me that's moved by that idea you know
1: yeah I, I, I totally did that yeah I, I took a big road trip across the country um from from I was in Reno but I went into California to pick up my buddy and then we traveled across the country to Florida and then I did another trip like up to Seattle and did another one in New York. And yeah, it was, you know, a bunch of stupidness. And then I was like, Oh, I'm going to write about it. And I was wearing like fucking, um, British racing caps and, (laughs) you know, Oh, this. I had a mustache. Yeah, of course. Who has a mustache? I mean, except hipsters nowadays, ironically. Well,
0: I was too I had the only time in my life I've ever worn a beard consistently, like a full heavy beard and mustache, was when I was like twenty and twenty one and <laughs> had seen i had seen some shit, man. I needed to I needed like a I needed to, you know, show show that somehow. Um <laughs> You know, I uh, I went through the same thing, pretty much. I mean, I remember freshman year of college reading On the Road. And, you know, there are certain books that just get passed out, passed around among college kids. And, like, I remember Tom Robbins, like, all of his books in Boulder. back oh, yeah. when, I mean, good God. And and Vonnegut is big in college. And, um, you know, there are just certain authors that, for whatever reason, really speak to people at that time in their lives. And um, you got to – I, I kind of wonder well, why that is, you know? Like, is there some way to, like – Really parse it, or is it just some? I don't know. It's probably sometimes
1: I kind of wish it had just been like Dickens or something, you know, like like that it had been Dickens instead of somebody like Kerouac. Like, but I mean, I think it turned out to be good in the end, no matter what, because then you know I got bored with all that stuff, you know, like the beatnik or hipster stuff, hippie stuff, and then
0: well, but that's went the on thing, to that's the thing too, though. Cool. Well, but you say so you're you're a Northern California kid who grew up with much more exposure to, like, beatnik culture and pot and, like, all that kind of stuff than, say, I did growing up in Indiana. Um, And so – but then I went to Boulder. And I think once you've sort of cycled through, uh, like, hippie culture or beatnik culture or whatever, then, like, you know, you move on maybe more quickly than some other people might.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe that's true. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like – I feel like I got bored. You know, it's not that I necessarily looked down my nose at – all of it some of it i did but i mean i i think like you just get bored it's like okay what else is there and like then you start to trace the genealogy uh if you will of these authors that you like and you find out that kerouac likes Celine, and then you read Celine, and it's right, like oh right. you, get, you know and you start to kind of that's the way i read it's like a breadcrumb trail you know well you just, see
1: then see then i like read bukowski and then it was like oh, hippies suck. Right. right <laughs> you know? Right. So then it was just like, then it was just jaded at everything around you, um, around the world, uh, because, you know, that attitude that Bukowski put out in a lot of his stories and poems and stuff is just this kind of tough guy, drunk. Right. Who's, who can't really deal with regular people well, I guess most of the characters and historians are not really regular people, but
0: and and who uh, has just been through so much shit, you know. It's just his, chi- right, just yeah. his childhood, just getting, you know, his abuse, and oh my god, like yeah, it's been through hell. Yep. Pretty fucked um, up, right? But, but yeah, <laughs>
1: which, fucked. which my life was not at all like.
0: But yeah, I know exactly. But then, like, it's not. It, for, but for some reason, like, I, you know, I, I had no problem, like, some sort of imagining that it was somehow, or like taking on that voice, you know, of like disaffected, you know, I don't know. I think that. That's one of the struggles I have, which I, is something else I talked with Colm about is that, uh, you know, just when you when you sort of have a good um, childhood, uh, like the, you know, how you can sort of feel envious of the people who didn't because they have more shit to write about or something like there's some part of me that's like, damn, I wish I'd been beaten, you know, <laughs> which is, like, <laughs> is an awful thing to say. But, you know, you're like you're like, God, it would just make me I would have so much more depth of soul. I would be so much more interesting on the page, you know, and. That's obviously like a really (laughs) fucked up way to think. But I think that there are a lot of people out there who might have that like fleeting thought or something when they look at a memoir and it's like, you know, I wish I would have, uh, you know, had such and such a childhood or whatever. But uh, that can't be right. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No (laughs) shit. Well, you know, and I I unfortunately had to end up going through like a pretty abusive relationship when I was in college. And you wrote about uh, this.
0: Yeah. For the nervous breakdown. Okay. So, uh, like along these lines with Bukowski and Kerouac and college and hedonism, um, you were drinking heavily, like you were partying a lot in college. I take it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of a weird situation. Like I was, um, I was always, I always did really well at school. You know, I was, um, that was something that was very much a priority for me. Um, and I did well, but I was always, um, uh, kind of like, uh, to steal a quote from, um, uh, one of the jimi hendrix movies that i saw one time a documentary it was like for everybody else it was like a pint and i needed a gallon you know so right i was yeah i drink a lot um and i was doing a lot of drugs and pretty heavily and like what of uh whatever you got man you know, like <laughs> it was, that's and that's pretty much what it was like for us like i had this group of friends and we called ourselves like Lodies. we'd be like oh you're such a Lodi, you know because it didn't matter what she had. It was just like some one night somebody would show up at the bar and he'd be like, oh, I got like 16 uh, pills of morphine. So let's take those. And then, you know, another night somebody would show up and they'd be like, oh, I just bought a ball of Coke, you know, whatever. Um, and we would just kind of take whatever we had. And uh, we partied like that all the time. For and, how many
0: years did this go on?
1: Uh, this, this was going on for, I mean, like in my life in total, yeah. um, a good 10 years probably.
0: Oh shit. Okay. So, yeah. you yeah. I had like a really like concentrated period of like where I was just, I would do anything. I'd be like, yeah, let's try it. You know? And then uh, I couldn't do that after like a year and a half.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably from like around 20, 21 years old until I was 30, 31. I was I was like doing pretty hard drugs for a long time and uh, doing, uh, doing them extensively and regularly.
0: Um, so did you have to go to, did you, did you have to go to rehab or anything?
1: No, no, I did not. I just, um, I, I met, a. I decided that I was kind of sick of that lifestyle and sick of hanging out in bars all the time. And I realized that the kind of women I was meeting were not <laughs> of the marrying type <laughs> go figure. Right. And I was like, you know, I kind of am sick of this and I kind of want to, uh, I kind of want to get married, and okay. so I just quit.
0: So what doing was that the, stuff. so what was this relationship that that uh, fucked you up in college? Like it was just you said it was an abusive relationship?
1: Yeah, yeah. Was, I was with this uh, woman who, with whom I worked at. I worked at a bar. Um, and uh, per- perfect she place. With
0: me. Perfect, you know, perfect place. Oh yeah. To
1: work. yeah. Perfect place to meet, to to work and to meet a, a woman that with whom you really want to shack up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know what restaurant and bar culture there's a lot of uh there's a lot of, a lot of partying on. yeah well there's partying yeah. and then there's lots of like i mean i have a buddy who's been like a he's like a career waiter and he's always got right. he's always got stories whether he's involved or it's coworkers that are involved there's always stuff going down
1: oh yeah yeah it's like notorious for that sort of sort of stuff and you know i met this this girl that i worked with and she was um you know, of course, she she was really cool when I first met her, and she was dating another guy, a uh, guy that I had introduced her to, and um, they were going out. And one night, we ended up like making out, you know. And then, uh, you know, a couple months after that, we were we moved in together, and we lived together for like a month. And um, this friend of mine, who is a just totally platonic friend. Uh, called the house. She had my new phone number and she said, you know, hey, I was hoping you'd be able to come to my birthday party and this girlfriend of mine was who had insane jealousy issues, like she just started laying into me, you know, like you fuck this chick. She's asking you to the birthday party. She's not inviting me. Like, what's your problem? And she just kept yelling, constantly yelling, yelling, yelling. And I lost it at one point and I picked up a lamp and I threw it against the wall, you know, and it just like it was, the lamp was plugged in and everything and just like sparks went flying everywhere. And it was just like was silence after that. And I was like really ashamed at what happened. And, um, basically from then on, it was like, both of us would just, we get into a fight and we destroy shit. (laughs) And it got to the point where she was really like hitting me. I never hit her or anything. Um, but I would just, destroy stuff you know like I would pick up a, I picked up a television once like a a 35 inch television and
0: like, just the, like, the, it. like the old tube televisions
1: oh yeah yeah this thing weighed like I don't know 35 pounds Yeah. I, just, I picked it and I threw it like 15 feet and it hit the wall and landed in a corner and started the corner on fire and
0: damn
1: I had to go stomp out the corner I mean we, we used to go, it was a regular thing to go to the Home Depot <laughs> and at the Home Depot they used to cut glass for you and we would go and cut glass for the windows that we had broken. Wow. Like the day before. That was almost like a weekly occurrence.
0: So you guys just triggered anger in one another? Were you drunk when you yeah. were doing this? Is that what it was? Yeah, oftentimes, yeah. She was, she was very – she had a
1: pretty serious drinking problem, I think. Yeah. And then, yeah, I was – and I was drinking heavily too. And then unbeknownst to her, I was often high on drugs.
0: Okay. So that was it. Yeah. I mean, that was it more than like you have some sort of, do you have a rage problem or anything like that? Do you get, do you have a hot temper? Uh,
1: I, you know, I think I actually honestly do have a, have a tendency to get, uh, I get, when I get cornered, right. um, you know, like I told you about this kid when I was in a freshman in high school, it's like, it's easy for somebody to trigger in me like a kind of, uh, yeah, kind of rage. Yeah. And I, I especially don't like to be cornered. You know, somebody's picking on me and pecking me.
0: Does that, that like? Um, do you, can you trace that back? I mean, is that there's some sort of like youth experience where you can be like, "This is the formative one." Like, this is the one that like built that tripwire in me. Like Did you have an experience where you were cornered as like a young boy?
1: That's a really great question. This sounds like therapy now. Well, but, but I awesome. mean, you know, but <laughs> but you know, what? I, you know, I don't know. I can't really remember anything specific. But I do know that this is not necessarily a trait that is specific to me. It's something that is in my family.
0: Well, but no, it's, it's not only in your family, it's in every human being. And I, th- that's why I think it's most interesting to me because it manifests in different ways, but anger is a real thing. And, um, learning how to manage it is important because, uh, you know, it might not be that you're physically abusive. You might not be chucking a television through the window or something, but, uh, especially with writers who are deaf with language, I think that, uh, verbal abuse uh, can happen in states of anger and rage you know you can say oh, yeah. you can say Absolutely. some really cutting shit and um you know or you can just lose your you know lose your temper in whatever ways and like i find myself um you know like uh, trying to get better at like making sure i don't uh speak in anger i like you, you really just don't right. do anything like if i feel angry in any way i try not to like have conversations with with like a uh, friend wife child whatever it would be Um, and not to do anything, like just try to like leave the apartment, go for a walk, go meditate.
1: That's, That's what my, that's what my recourse has been in the last, you know, 10 years or whatever is that I leave, you know, it's like if I all of a sudden start feeling that anger, I, I, I just say to my wife, like, I gotta go, you know, and she understands. And so, you know, I leave, I'm gone for an hour or whatever. I come back, I've calmed down. We're able to talk things out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it seems to work.
0: You want to know my but, trick? This is like, this is going to, yeah. this is embarrassing to admit in a way, but I think it actually is helpful. So I'm going to share it, yeah. but, uh, like I'm a big fan of Thich Nhat Hanh, that Buddhist monk. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, okay. uh, he, he advocates for the, <laughs> he right. adv- he's like a really sweet man. He's like 86 and you know, he's from Vietnam. So he speaks in kind of like, uh, um, you know, his own, his own English. It's very clear, but it's very specific to him because it's his like second or third language. But um, he talks about, like, how when you feel anger, it's like having, like, a crying baby inside of you. And that, like, mm-hmm. you, you're just supposed to treat it like a mother or like a father would with a wailing infant, you know? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, I swear I It's s- totally irrational, you yeah. know? Yeah. Just, like just like a child. It's you like know? you have
0: a wailing baby inside of you, and you, so you should just, like, breathe and take care of it. And I swear to God, thinking of it that way, uh, when I can catch it, totally, like, you know, as long as I do the breathing and I leave and I, like, you know, have a moment, it diffuses it. Right. And I'm like I'm less of an asshole because of it. <laughs> yeah. Which is always a good thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I really want to start doing is when i'm feeling that anger like instead of just going out and going for a walk or going somewhere and getting a beer is like going jogging yeah sure i mean i jog i jog every day regularly you're like i jog uh, i jogged at the bar i mean come on like, yeah, you know, yeah exactly but i'm like maybe i can translate this anger into some actual exercise
0: well but see this is it for me because like i'm a like there are a lot of uh writers that i talked to on this show who uh are runners or exercisers and like i'm definitely that way and it's like it's a mood regulator you know it's also good Mm -hmm. it's good for you physically but it's like that's what it is for me and so like,
1: it releases all these chemicals in your brain that make you feel good you know like i I would say
0: i would say to anybody who has like mild depression and is on like serotonin reuptake inhibitors or whatever uh, well you know i'm not a doctor i gotta issue a disclaimer but if you have like serious depression and you're neurochemically fucked like listen to your doctor but if you are just, like, you have the blues and your doctor's like, yeah, sure, take some, you know. Right. Like, if, you, if you're, <laughs> try exercise, I promise, you know. Like, you go out and, like, you break a sweat and get some endorphins in your bloodstream. Like, it's pretty much the same thing, almost. And I think it has, yeah. you know, it has a, a mitigating effect and it helps you manage all that, you know.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So Absolutely.
0: wow, we're getting like medical on this one.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. It's really funny. Like, yeah, pretty soon you're gonna have like Dr. Drew calling in. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs>
0: uh, and I'm like, I'm drinking really hot tea, and for whatever reason, like, I'm I'm sweating right now. I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm expending a lot of energy. You know, it feels good.
1: Yeah, so. well, you know, you get like into it, and I'm 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 not sweating, but I'm in I'm in a room where uh, I think the woman who's normally in this room is. She's very petite, so the heat is really, really high.
0: Well, that's the thing too: is my window is closed, and I'm just I'm overdressed. I should take this coat off, but I don't want to make noise, you know, in the (laughs) microphones. Right. I'm just going to sweat it out. So, um, to get back to this relationship, because this is interesting. Like, what was the end game? You guys obviously had a very heated uh, thing going on. That was like, I think probably, uh, you know, uh, was not helped by the chemical element. You know, for, yeah. on both sides. So, like, how did that wrap itself up, and, like, how did you emerge from that?
1: Um, Basically, what happened was that um, I, I kind of came to a point where, you know, I knew that this was just not going to continue to uh,
0: work out, to be fruitful, and... Which is a delicate way of putting it. Like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't, it's kind of weird, man. I guess like, um, you know, in this period of time, I had I, what I guess what people might call like a moment of clarity or something. I don't know. But um, I realized that like, okay, I have to try to treat this somewhat rationally. And um, I really cut things out quite a bit. I, I, I cleaned up quite a bit. And um, I my girlfriend moved away. Um, For a while, she moved to Los Angeles, and I stayed in Reno. And so we split up for a little while, and things kind of calmed down. She eventually came back to Reno, got her own place. We started dating again, but we were not going to live together anymore. And things were fine, but I just told myself, like, if anything, if it ever escalates the way that it did before, I'm out. That's it. And, yeah, there was one day, man, when she laid into me and she just screamed at me for, I kid you not, like four hours
0: straight. Oh my God.
1: And I was just laying on a futon and I just let her go. I let her scream and then she got done and she was like, I mean, she was breathing hard and she was like, okay, I got it out of my system. And so I was like, do you realize how long you've been screaming at me? And she was like, yeah, it's been about 20 minutes. And I was like, no, it's been four hours. You know, Mm -hmm. and I told her what time it was and she refused to believe me. Like there was no way in her mind that that could have happened, even though I had showed up at her apartment at two o'clock and it was now six o'clock in the evening.
0: Well, but you know what, isn't it so crazy with the rage thing too, is that like, you think it's going to feel good to get rid of it and to like, just lay it out there. Um, And maybe, maybe in the moment there is some sort of like weird, like high that you get on, but like you just feel gross afterwards. You never feel better. You just feel like shit. Or yeah, that's
1: yeah, like, you feel ashamed and yeah. You just feel stupid no, and feel, you're like, yeah. Once you cool you down, like, uh, you feel like, you know, just like a child who's done something wrong. Right. You know? <laughs> right. That's what you feel like. Oh. And um, so anyway, she, she got done and I, and she was, she was trying to apologize. And I just said, you know, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm going to go home. You know, let's just, I'm just going to go home. And that was it, you know? And she, she was calling me for week's, and I was just like, I'm sorry, but it's just not going to work out anymore. Wow. And and that was that. And then I really, what really severed everything was I moved to Atlanta. What brought you to Atlanta? I got my doctorate degree out here, oh, so sure. I, had, I I applied. Um, I was in Reno at this at the time when this happened. I had finished my undergraduate degree, and then I had finished a, a master's degree, and. Um, and I, my master's degree was in English, not really in creative writing, but I was writing all the time when I was doing this. And I knew I wanted to be a writer and, and work as a writer. And I wanted to get a degree in creative writing. So I applied to a bunch of creative writing programs and, um, I got accepted for this, uh, doctoral program. And so I moved to Georgia.
0: So what was the, what was, here. what was the doctor? Was it Georgia state?
1: Yeah. 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 in fiction at Georgia state.
0: Okay, cool. I didn't realize I was speaking with a doctor.
1: i keep it on the dl you know yeah
0: so your wife's a lawyer and you're a doctor look at you guys indeed
1: yeah yeah that's
0: that's the case so do people call you dr Iredell? do you get that a lot
1: uh yeah sometimes i mean you know i insist upon my students calling you that (laughs)
0: hell yeah Um, dude if you went to all the trouble to get the doctorate you might as well use the title
1: (laughs) i actually don't like you know if my students call me professor or mister or whatever i don't correct them but um in fact, this, uh, I just got done teaching b uh, we're on a quarter system. So we just finished prior to the Thanksgiving holiday and, um, it somehow came up on the last day of class that I was, you know, I just I mentioned getting my doctorate degree and my students were like, Whoa, you're a doctor. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Yes, I am.
1: You didn't know that? Like I, <laughs> I mentioned that on the first day of class.
0: <laughs> you don't even get the, I feel like, I feel like they should be informed. There's gotta be something. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, oh, you know, these are undergrad comp students,
0: you know, they're kind of flighty, yeah. you know, right, right. Yeah. They're like, they barely even know that they're in college. Sure. Um, okay. So publishing the publishing process, like how did you get yourself into print? Um, what, you know, what, describe the struggle.
1: Um, well, like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I guess like, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess it was a struggle. You, I was publishing in literary magazines for a long time. Um, and just kind of never really put a book together. And then right, right around when I was finishing up my, my doctorate, I had written, I wrote, you know, my dissertation was a novel in stories. And, um, but at the same time, I was always, I was always writing poetry too. So I really kind of started off as a poet and then kind of gravitated towards fiction and then eventually nonfiction. Right. And, uh, um, So I was was putting together this poetry manuscript and I had been at, um, I'd been at a Breadloaf Loaf, Writers Conference. Sure, sure. And, um, and, uh, up there, I just kind of had this, like, I met all these great people, these people who are still my friends now, probably, I think, I think a lot of people who have been on this podcast. Like who? I'll see. Have you had, um... Eugene Cross On the show before No uh-uh. No Um Uh Laura Vandenberg
0: Yeah sure I just talked to yeah,
1: her Yeah Laura Laura yeah Laura is a very good Friend of mine We were just reading Together up in Massachusetts Oh uh, cool A week ago Um She was there Chad Simpson I don't think you've Had Chad on no, the
0: show No I haven't had Chad Um
1: he's a, he's a fantastic writer Um i got a bunch Of other people Okay There's, There were really Too many to count Um And a lot of poets As well as fiction writers Um, and, uh, anyway, I just had, I had a fantastic time and I started writing this new stuff while I was up there and I came back from that experience and was kind of furiously writing, um, these little short prose poems slash, uh, flash fictions. And when I put them together, they kind of formed this narrative, this overarching narrative. And it ended up becoming my first book, which was uh, the prose, poems, novel book. Um, And, uh, you know, I started sending those pieces out to magazines, and they were getting snatched up, you know, all over the place. And so that was a really exciting feeling. And then um, basically somebody queried me about putting out a book, and I didn't really –
0: you um, didn't even contact. have to. They, you're like they came to me, dude. I didn't even have to go
1: <laughs> I mean, of course, we're talking about small press here, so it's not like it's not like Random House was like, "Hey, we would like to publish
0: one of the books." Here. Hey, but you know what? But you know what? This seems to be like a con- more con- more and more common occurrence where um, somebody starts to get traction online. They might self publish or micro, you know go with the micro press for their first book, uh, mm-hmm. or they just publish exclusively online a series of essays or short stories or what what have you, and then. <laughs> Um, a small press gets a hold of them. And then from there, uh, you know, uh, we've seen it happen, uh, at the next level too, where you have like a bigger house grabbing onto, um, an author who has published some really great stuff with a small press, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I mean, it seems to be happening more and more now. And I, you know, when I was listening to you and um, Kevin talking, you guys were talking about it you know like the using the sports analogy like the the farm system of oh, the big presses. You mean right?
0: Ke- Kevin Samsel?
1: Yeah, Kevin Samsel, yeah. I didn't clarify that, but yeah.
0: Yeah. No, uh, I think I think that analogy holds, you know. It's like a farm system almost and Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. The only it's the only talent.
0: the only aspect of it that I don't like is this notion that like somehow like small press books are exclusively like minor league literature because I don't think that's the case. I think like you can be fully that's- you can be fully pro on a small press. Uh, oh yeah. In terms of quality, I just mean that, like, in terms of like you know your reach and the distribution and the, mon- the you know, theoretically right, the, the right. money, the money behind the operation.
1: You know, because look at look at the you know the vast majority of poets are are publishing with small presses, and you know the best poets in the in the, in the language are publishing with small presses.
0: I mean, know, so. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, poetry. Um, I think you know, and I think. Uh, I've I've heard multiple people say this, but like I don't think there's been a better time for poets, in terms of being able to um, get themselves into print and also get their work in front of people. And I think that poetry is especially well suited to um, the digital reading experience because of yeah you know the the general like rapidity with which you can ingest a poem you know as opposed well,
1: to well in particular like on the internet you know because on the internet. When you're actually, well, and what I mean specifically is like looking at an actual computer screen Uh as opposed to, say, like um, like an e-book reader. Um, Because e-book readers can mess with lines somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, if you're looking at a computer screen, you're actually not limited to the page in the same way that you are with traditional print. Right. So, like, if you want to have long lines, you can have long lines. You can have a really long poem. There's no limit to, you know, what you're putting out in terms of content. Um, so, yeah, it's really kind of an exciting time in terms of that for poets. And, you know, you have all these people, like, a lot of these all-day kids are doing some pretty interesting stuff with, with poetry, like um, vlogging and um, you know, like Steve Rogenbuck and
0: those, well, sure. those
1: kids are, are doing some some pretty interesting stuff. I, not all of it's interesting, but a lot of it is really... I
0: yeah, you know, Dude, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I remember distinctly like five or six or seven years ago in LA with some poet friends of mine from uh, grad school and from Los Angeles, like we had had a few drinks and I was sitting there like pounding the table saying like the future of poetry is going to be like that sort of multimedia presentation. And I was saying that, like, eventually there's going to be, like, you know how R2-D2 in Star Wars, like, projects that little Princess Leia? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. eventually, like, your computer, <laughs> like, eventually our computers are just going to, like, project, like, a little Steve Rogen buck on our desks. And he's going to be, like, freaking out on your desk in, like, 3D. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't you, it's going to be, like, the hologram is the next wave. I'm, I'm serious, man, you know? Like, some sort of, like, laser. Like, if
1: they could actually make the, if, if they could actually make the damn technology work.
0: I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. It's on its way. If it, you know, if in some laboratory somewhere, probably in Northern California, <laughs> there's somebody smoking like weed and. Trying somebody
1: to- in Menlo Park is figuring <laughs> it out, yeah. right. right as we speak. Yeah.
0: So uh, before I let you jump, you know, you're you're now uh, moving into nonfiction. So you sort of you kind of touched all the bases. You've done fiction. You've done poetry. <laughs> Um, and you know, you, now you've worked in non uh, nonfiction, like, is there one that you feel most comfortable in? Did you like all three experiences? Was there anything that you found was different or, you know, or like notably? I, I
1: really, I really like working in all of those genres. Um, the, each one has kind of a different feeling for me. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I have synesthesia, but it's, uh, uh, each one has kind of a mood or color about it um, to me. What, so color,
0: like, what color is nonfiction?
1: <laughs> nonfiction is very green. Okay. Um, and it's got a, uh, a, the mood is really uh, contemplative, I guess. Like, I think a lot about nonfiction. I, um, in particular, essays. Like, I, uh, I tend to premeditate them um, quite a bit. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be jogging and I'll think about something that I might want to talk about or whatever, and I'll, and I'll think very much about how I want to talk about that thing, what form I might want the essay to take before I ever even put out a first draft. Right. And that's not something that happens with um, fiction or poetry. I, I tend to try to actively try not to think about it very much so that what happens when it comes out, it just kind of comes out, and I, I want to be surprised by it.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: But, yeah, with nonfiction, I I really tend to think carefully about it, which is one of the reasons why, like, God, I I love and admire Roxane Gay so much. But I don't know how the hell she's able to write such good stuff about contemporaneous uh, subject matter in such a quick time. Like, if I could do that, you know, I, too, would be writing for The Wall Street Journal or whoever, but there's no way that I can put out content that's as good as the content that she puts out in such a short period of time. I really have to think about it much longer.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't get it either. Like people can just like turn around on a dime and just like immediately have like a fully formed opinion about something in the culture. And I guess like, you know, but you have to be a pretty voracious consumer of culture. And I I just don't know, maybe that's the issue for me or like I'm a slower consumer of culture, but like I find myself overwhelmed by that almost, you know, like to, like, something happens, and then I'll look at my Twitter feed and be like, oh, Jesus, like, everyone's just, like, chirping about it, and um, I don't know. I guess it's good to, like, sit down with some meditative piece that was written quickly but is still, you know, somehow fully formed to get a handle on it all. But do you, yeah. ever, do you ever get that overwhelmed feeling, you know, when there's something, like, that sort of, you know, everyone in the seems to be talking about, and it's just like, I don't know. That makes me mute. That's what it does to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, it happens in particular with somebody like Roxanne, you know, like she was able to put together amazing topical pieces and I'm just, it's just like, all right, you know, I, there's no way that I could even comment on this. Um, and other times it's the subject matter itself, you know, like, um, I don't know what's going on recently. I guess there's that, (laughs) this is, this is stupid. It's not something I'm actually really all concerned about, but, um, like the, the Goldie Blocks thing and the Beastie Boys. This was like on my Facebook feed today and people are like kind of complaining about the fact that the Beastie Boys are are putting together a suit or maybe they're just putting together a cease and desist letter about against the um you know this Goldie Blocks thing which is like a mechanical engineering toy for girls, you know to and to get girls thinking about different ways to play that will use their brains in different ways so that it's not all just princesses and Barbie, you know? Okay. Yeah. Which is kind of really great. And they had, um, they had this, uh, commercial that was going around online that included a kind of, um, parody version of the Beastie Boys girls.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: the Beastie Boys sent them a cease and desist letter. And, um, and anyway, people are talking about this and it's just like, you know, like I would, you know, I have a little girl, you know, I want my little girl to think that she can be or do whatever she wants. She can be a beastie girl. She can, she can be a, a a doctor, you know, she can be whatever the fuck she wants to be. She doesn't have to be wearing pink all the time. If she wants to, that's fine, you know, but like she doesn't, she doesn't have to have that only option. And right. Like, I want to be able to say something about that, but, like, I don't know. I can't. Like but dude... Just, I'd have to think about it. You know what?
0: That, that, me I, me as well. But there's also... my Like, my part of it might just be laziness. I'm like, oh, you know, someone someone else is going to say this. Like, I don't, there's going to be a million people writing about this. Like, they don't need another voice. Like, you know? Or I'll just be like, I'll let Roxanne do it. <laughs> you know? Like, she'll do it. Exactly. <laughs> and like, exactly. I think you just have to have the impulse to, like, want to be heard, you know, and to have, like, a voice in that conversation. I think I'm just... I, I'm in a different headspace and conversation, you know, and, and there should be that too, right? Right. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, one last question, since uh, you mentioned that you have like a, a color association with the different uh, kinds of uh, writing, uh, do you have like a color associated with this podcast? Is there something I should be aware of? <laughs>
1: um. No, but you know the one that immediately comes to mind, and this is just simply because of what you have for your like web banner and everything is yellow.
0: Okay, it's my fa- <laughs> it's my favorite color. I like the color. Oh, uh, good.
1: All right, I there like, you go.
0: It reminds me of like lemons and things of that nature. So yeah, um, this has been really fun, dude. I appreciate the uh, the time. I congratulate you on the new book, and yeah, thank uh, you. wish you well with the uh, with the young daughter. I have one as well, so I know how that goes. And yeah,
1: how old's your little girl? She's three. Three. Okay. Our daughters are about the same age.
0: Yeah. So, so we're, we're about in the same stage, but, uh, best of luck with that. Good luck with the writing and, uh, with the uh, humidity in Atlanta.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it.
0: All right, folks, there you have it. That is Jamie Iredell. Go get his book. It's called, I was a fat drunk Catholic school insomniac, which is fun to say. I was a fat drunk Catholic school insomniac. You can find him online at jamieiredell.blogspot.com. He's on Twitter, Uh, where his handle is at Jamie Iredell, and he's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the good music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this program. It's the best way to listen and also uh, the best way to access premium content and the full archives. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And uh, once again, the app itself is free, so go get that if you haven't done it already. Uh... Happy Thanksgiving wherever you uh, happen to be and please do know I should take this uh, opportunity to let you know how grateful I am to have your support and your listenership. I'm serious about that. Uh, this podcast doesn't exist without you. I have to have uh, listeners and in order to find uh, listeners and uh, newer you know in, in order to grow the audience, people have to talk about the show and uh, tweet about it and Facebook it and whatnot. Uh, that stuff is obviously gold and it has been happening and I want to, uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Do you like that? A little, uh, actual sincere emotion from me. Happy holidays. God damn it. Please remember that Sigmund Freud once attended a lecture by Mark Twain and that syphilis was originally referred to in Europe as the French disease. That is all for now. Thanks again to Jamie Iredell. Go get his book. I will be back again soon. I don't know. If I'll be back on Sunday, it's a holiday weekend. Shit's happening. I got people in town. I got to see if I can swing it. Uh, it's up in the air. So if not on Sunday, then I'll be back next Wednesday, but it may be on Sunday. It just sort of depends. It's going to be a game time to de- uh, game time decision. I'll, one way or the other, I'll tweet about it. Is that acceptable? Can I have some leeway here? Uh, Will you please permit me to operate inside this gray area?